Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Shermer. Michael is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, and he is the author of many books, most recently, Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational. Amanda has previously been a guest on Michael's podcast, The Michael Shermer Show, and has also written about cognitive bias for Skeptic Magazine. You can find links to both of those in the episode description. I was juggling a baby while this episode was being recorded, so it's just Amanda and Michael here, and they get into a wide-ranging discussion about the nature of belief and skepticism, which begins with UFOs and aliens, and why it is that, like Fox Mulder, so many of us want to believe. All right, it's so great to get back in the booth with you. Um, last <laughs> time it was me for your podcast. This time you for me. And I feel really lucky because I feel like I don't get to talk to people about UFOs that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably not in your wheelhouse, but uh, uh, we can talk about whatever you want. I mean, sure. abductions are kind of in my wheelhouse a little bit. <laughs> oh, well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, a lot of it, uh, particularly the alien abduction phenomenon, is pure psychology. It's uh, sleep paralysis, most likely. Mm. And uh, it's, you know, experiences that people have when they're asleep. Sleep. You know, they're not actually going anywhere uh, outside of their mind. And it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, you know, some non-trivial percentage of the population has sleep paralysis, where they wake up in the middle of the night, uh, their bodies are somewhat paralyzed, or they feel paralyzed, they can't move, but they wake up. It's like a waking dream or a lucid dream. Uh, and then there's a weird sense presence component to it in which it feels like there's this, you know, kind of dangerous, threatening being or agent of some kind of monstrous kind of uh, figure in the room. You can't quite make out a face. It's often described. So the culture kind of tells you how to fill in the details. So you mm. know, centuries ago, these were demons. These are incubi and succubi coming to harass people in their beds at night. And, you know, we, we've gotten past that. <laughs> we don't mostly believe in demons anymore, but aliens, aliens are our demons. So that's aliens are from. our demons. Although it's yeah. interesting, you know, I'm really actually quite excited for you to talk to me about the relationship between people's desire to believe in aliens and how that relates to religious um, desires to believe in in supernatural beings who have our, you know, best wishes or not our best wishes at heart. And I think the thing that I find fascinating about it is I'm a little bit sucked into the wanting to believe that aliens exist, in part because it feels absolutely arrogant to think that we're the only 
you know, life in the universe. Like how could like my brain just explodes at like, how is that even possible? But then there's that question alongside the have we been visited by aliens and do is Roswell a thing? And is the government telling us everything about aliens? So what is this relationship between the desire to believe something and how does that relate to the desire to believe to have, to have religious beliefs? Yeah, good. Uh, that that we really need to tease apart those two separate questions that people often conflate and then get confused about what people are talking about, and they usually are talking past each other. Are they out there versus have they come here? Those are the two big questions. So the UFO community th- thinks they've been here, either in ancient alien form or they're coming now, or in the 1950s with Roswell and and although the big burst of sightings in the late 40s, early 50s. But that's a separate question. The, you know, the question is, are they out there? Is one mainly studied by SETI scientists and related astronomers and cosmologists and, you know, people that um, are interested in thinking about, are we alone in the universe? So most people, uh, intuitions are like yours, that it just seems unlikely that given the numbers, you know, 100 hundreds of billions of galaxies, each of which have hundreds of billions of stars. And as the Kepler telescope is showing us, pretty much all of them have planets. Almost all stars have planets. So once you crunch the numbers, you get trillions and trillions of planets. Uh, You only need a tiny percent to be Earth-sized, the right distance from their sun for the right amount of heat, not too hot, not too cold, the so-called Goldilocks. And, And no matter how improbable it is that the right chemicals will come together to form the First cells and then replicating molecules like it, something like a DNA, and then you get evolution takes off. And there's a, a zillion steps between you know bacteria-sized life and big brain life like ours. But again, the numbers are so huge that it just seems almost almost zero that we're alone, right? There's right. Just got to be some, you know. But it's a big, vast, empty space. Right. Um, there's they're mostly, way over there. <laughs> way over there. So even if they're out there, it's very unlikely that they could have found us. And so that, that's when you shift to the, well, what's the evidence that they have come here? Well, first of all, there's no evidence of either one, right? <laughs> we have yet to discover any kind of life of any kind on any other planet. It's likely we'll find something on Mars once the equipment gets more sophisticated. Or mm. we send people there and, and archaeologists or paleontologists that start digging around. Uh, but, uh, y- you know, in terms of making contact, most SETI scientists think it's not going to be physical. We're not going to visit them or they're not going to visit us. It's going to be radio signals uh, or, you know, some some portion of the electromagnetic spectrum that can contain information that comes across the vast distances of interstellar space and we pick it up with our telescopes or whatever. That's how most, like contact with, you know, Jodie Foster playing the uh, the lead character in Carl Sagan's novel, you know, with the ear, earbuds on, with the cans on, you know, and the signal comes through a series of prime numbers, something that can't be naturally created like rotating black holes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how does this all relate to religious beliefs mm. and oh, the yeah. desire to believe? Because I think like one major difference, at least in my personal experience, is I 
I did not grow up believing either in aliens or in God, but a lot of people do grow up believing in God. They're indoctrinated from a from a young age into the belief system of their culture and and so it feels like like the feeling that God must exist seems like deeply deeply rooted in unconscious um sort of assuming of the beliefs of our parents, but are you UFOs aren't really like that. Like that's <laughs> not something you don't, you know, I'm sure there's probably a church of UFOs out there somewhere, but like <laughs> it's it's not the predominant like so the the predominant how do people enter into the UFO belief space and how is that how does that compare to entering into a religious belief space? There was a French guy, I forget his name now, back in the 70s and 80s who had a UFO church, and he claimed to be something like a, 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 one of the aliens, or he was in contact with the aliens, or something like that. Anyway, he was just having sex with his, with the female members of his group. So Classic. <laughs> pretty, Classic. Pretty, pretty, pretty <laughs> typical cultish behavior, right? Um, well, I've been floating this idea around for many years that it's like a religious belief, and neither study scientists nor or UFO believers seem to be fond of my hypothesis. You know, the SETI <laughs> scientists say, you know, we're not religious. In fact, we're mostly atheists, and that's not why we're doing this. It's mm. like, I know that's not why you're doing it, but, you know, this idea that there's something bigger, more advanced than us out there somewhere, that is what God is. You know, mm. God is defined by most religions as this omniscient, omnipotent uh, deity that's out there somewhere that knows we're here and that, you know, either created everything or had something to do with the creation and acknowledges our existence and may have something to do with the afterlife or something like that, right? So um, I think that the quest is a deep one. And this is not original to me. Sagan had this idea back in the late 50s, early 60s that it's the same impulse. You know, even if you're, when you're searching, um, you know, radio signals in your radio telescopes for aliens, it doesn't feel like religion. But the impulse to find something, someone, some agent, some being out there somewhere that's more advanced than us, smarter than us, more moral than us, uh, you know, with great technology, great power, you know, that's almost always what the aliens are portrayed as. Mm. Um, and, and, and that would be correct if we made contact with an extraterrestrial intelligence, they're not going to be just a few years ahead of us or behind us, right? Because of the complexities of evolution and the unlikeliness that any um, evolutionary process on some other planet would be in lockstep with ours. Right. It's, it's just, you know, not going to happen. And and you see how, how rapid technology, science technology evolves now, you know, just take the last century of computer technology or planes or whatever, you know, they all have this kind of exponential growth rate most technologies do. So, if you know, carry it out, not a century, but, you know, a thousand centuries or, you know, a million centuries. And it would be something like that. First of all, we're not going to make contact with aliens that are less advanced than us because I would, they wouldn't have radio to contact us. They wouldn't have spaceships to come here because we just got all that. So they'd be more advanced than us. And if we did encounter them, to me, I so I floated this idea. I call it Shermer's Last Law because you don't name laws after yourself. So it was something <laughs> something of a joke. Oh, I need to uh, remember to do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. But this is like Arthur C. Clarke's third law, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm. And, you know, just think about the, the, the paralyzed people now that have a chip put in their mortar cortex and they can learn to move the cursor on the screen or actually 
move arms and 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 pick up a cup and, and, and take a drink out of it just by thinking. Now, if you didn't know the person had a chip in their brain, you'd think, well, this is telekinesis, right? some kind of extrasensory perception. Looks paranormal, but it's not. It's just technology. So to me, if we did make contact, the gods would seem like I, I suppose we would seem to a Neanderthal if you had, you know, a smartphone. It'd be like, oh, that's just magic. Right. That's, you know, that's power. That's like religious power. It's a miracle. <laughs> so I think it's something like that. I mean, I think it's not conscious. You know, it's kind of a, a, a deeper quest that almost all thinking people have. Just like there's, why am I here? What are we doing here? Where did this all come from? What does it all mean? What What else is out there? You know, it's just natural to go in that direction if you give it much thought, and and it's so you know whether you find it you know, that it's it's Yahweh as the as the agent or one other religious gods or aliens. I, to me, I don't see that much difference between them. So, are are do you think that there is a sense of trying? to make sense or find meaning in an ultimately random and chaotic universe. And that's part of the draw of the alien belief system. I think so. Yes. Because, um, you know, the, the, the only thing scarier, like I talk about this in my conspiracy book, the only thing scarier than that there's, uh, you know, the Illuminati or, or the Rothschilds or the Rockefellers or the alien lizards are running the world is that no one's running the world, right? It's just, it's like, it's, you mean what? No one knows what's going on? No, it's chaotic. You know, how you know, how do economies work? Well, you know, we have teams of reams of PhD economists who don't agree with each other on, you know, the most basic questions. Why is there inflation? You know, how do we stop inflation? You know, and there's just, they, they can't agree. It's like, okay, so th- these are really complex systems that have emergent properties you can't predict and control, almost impossible to control. So that, I think, is discombobulating to most people. It's, it's part of the, the uh, attractiveness of conspiracy theories, but also that just of any kind of agency out there, you know, somebody, surely somebody knows what's going on. Somebody understands this. Somebody can control the whole thing. And that leads to that idea, you know, nothing happens by chance. Everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. That every, Almost everybody goes in that direction, starts very young. Uh, developmental psychologists tell us that, you know, children, you know, imagine the little toy mouse that the alligator munches in the little uh, uh, presentation. They present these small kids. And, you know, the, the, from a very early age, they imagine the munched mouse is somewhere else. It went somewhere. You know, it still exists somewhere. It misses its mommy and it's scared and it's thirsty or whatever. So, you know, it's easy to you know kind of portray like the, the essence of the being continues on without the physical body. You know, and that's the basis of belief in the afterlife and heaven. You go somewhere, you know, what's it like to not exist? How would, it's impossible to picture it because you have to exist to picture something, right? So before you know it, you have gods in an afterlife in some place out there and these kind of hidden invisible agents. And that's all wrapped up to me, I think, in the UFO thing as well. It's like a religion. Hmm. What do you say to those who argue that belief... I'll begin this question again. As someone who is professed skeptic, that skepticism is, you know, a a fundamental way of living as a rational uh, human being in the world, and it's really important. um, What do you say to those who argue that fundamentally all things 
come down to belief. Even the scientific method is ultimately something that people believe in and that evidence is like, where do you draw the line about what counts as evidence, what counts as something that is justifiably believed in versus just believed in out of the desire to believe? Have you ever encountered people who have proposed that argument to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a big question in epistemology. You know, what is, you know, what is knowledge? Justified true belief. Well, what is justified? <laughs> you right. know, the, your justification may not be mine. Mm-hmm. And for most people, you know, something like faith or I just believe it or I feel it inside is good enough. And the whole point of the scientific method, which is pretty recent, really just only a few centuries old, and really only in the last 50 years have we developed fairly sophisticated techniques uh, with particularly large computers for analyzing huge data sets of statistical analysis to really make sure we're getting true causal understanding of things. And even with that, you know, the replication crisis in psychology and medicine started as late as 2008, you know, and and only so only the last few years have, you know, serious scientists, you know, we really got to do something about this because, you know, half the studies published probably should have never been published. <laughs> so that's how hard that's how hard it is, right? All the cognitive biases and confirmation bias motivated reasoning, not to mention the statistical issues like p hacking, where you you got to get a 0.05 level of of statistical significance. Well, you can manipulate the data to make that happen if it's close. You know, throw out the extreme data points to make the numbers come out a different way slightly. You know, no one would know because none of that's put in the published papers. So peer reviewers, they don't know what you did with you. They rarely see the original data. Anyway, the point is, is that science is so new and our evolved cognition to just, you know, have a hunch about things, our intuitions, you know, are not that very reliable. Mm. I mean, most of our uh, folk physics is not only not Einsteinian, it's not even Newtonian. Mm. You know, the idea that an object, uh, you know, in motion will stay in motion forever until something acts upon it. It's like you never see that anywhere ever (laughs) <laughs> right? right. You roll a ball and it just stops. Well, why? Well, because of friction and so on. But, you know, our folk psychology, our folk economics, our folk biology, you know, our folk biology, most people are creationists. It just seems like the eye was designed. It looks like a designed object, so there must be a designer. That's natural. That's normal. It's counterintuitive to think there's no designer. Well, then where did all this complexity come from? Well, then you got to get into Darwin and natural selection. How does it work? And, and most people don't actually even know how it works. This is the work of uh, Andrew Stillman, my friend and colleague at Occidental College, who you know, got people who said publicly they accept the theory of evolution by natural selection. Totally, they have no adherence to creationism at all. But you ask them, well, how does it work? <laughs> and they don't know. Actually, they usually <laughs> offer some kind of Lamarckian, well, the giraffe stretch its neck and then the babies have longer necks. No, that isn't how it works, right? So when they're saying they believe it, they're really signaling something more generic. Like, I accept science. They seem to mostly get it right. So I'll just say, yeah, I accept it. Right. And same thing with climate change or, you know, pretty much anything. Uh, People who signal they accept it or reject it really don't understand it very well. There's Mm. a famous study, Dan Cahan's study on NAFTA. People that publicly signal they they support NAFTA or they oppose NAFTA. If you ask them, well, what is it? 
Well, it's that North America. It's some kind of trade thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All I know is my party doesn't like it, or my party does like it. So, you know, and so I think much of our beliefs are just not really thought out because mm. who has time to read all that stuff, right? I mean, this is my day job is like reading articles on climate change to edit an issue of Skeptic on, you know, global warming or something like that. Well, you know, it's a massive undertaking and I, I'm not a climate scientist. What, you know, I have to consult people. The average person doesn't have time to do any of that. So really they're just, it's a, these are proxy beliefs. It just kind of stands in for something else. I trust science. I don't like the liberals. I don't like the conservatives. And therefore I signal my belief in this or that. Right. Well, that's a I mean, that's a fascinating problem. Not all of us can just sit around and consult experts and be skeptical, um, you know, professionally. So how is it that I mean, even somebody reading Skeptic magazine has to have a certain belief in you. (laughs) And how do you like how do you propose that people manage the their beliefs, given that? Even if beliefs are not ideal, they're kind of necessary in order to function. Yeah, you have to. You wouldn't get out of bed if you didn't believe things were going to work. Right. That there's gravity, and the car's going to start, and the money's still in the bank, and my job's still going to pay me. And you know, just kind of, who has time to think through all that stuff? You just make all kinds of assumptions. You know, but to the question, why should we believe you, Mister Skeptic? My answer is, you shouldn't. <laughs> Don't take my word for it. <laughs> We could tell you all the great reasons you should support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, my name is Allie, and I joined Labyrinths Patreon because there's nowhere else that you can explore the ebbs and the flows of humanity with the kind of truth and grace that you can get with Labyrinths. There really isn't anywhere else you can get that. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. So back to the UFOs. So what should I believe? Have we been visited? Okay. So instead of saying yes or no, let's drop that binary black and white approach to knowledge. Just make it a continuum. A, a Let's assign a percentage likelihood to it. Mm. So this is the basis of uh, Bayesian reasoning, where you could kind of do some calculations to the extent that you can based on the evidence of what you should or should, should not believe in its likelihood. So we start with what's called uh, Cromwell's rule. Oliver Cromwell was the uh, the, you know, the famous jurist and politician who said, I beseech you in the vow- bowels of Christ, you might be mistaken. <laughs> now, this was a, a political speech he gave, but the this has come to be known in Bayesian reasoning as Cromwell's rule. That is, you never assign a zero or a hundred to anything, because hmm. we might be wrong. Hmm. Right? None of us are omniscient. We're not deity. I'm not God. Neither are you. There is an objective reality, only I don't know what it is, and you don't either. So we have to start with the assumption that, you know, we could be wrong. Now, given my priors about UFOs that I've been, you know, following this for 40 years, and I've been hearing claims about, you know, disclosure at any moment, and we still get the same old blurry photographs and grainy videos and stories about weird things in the sky, you know, my priors are pretty, my priors tell me that my credence is very low that they're they're actually here. But not zero. You know, Mm. I could be wrong. 
And, uh, you know, on the other hand, following your uh, opening, I, I would say my priors tell me that it's very, very, very likely that they're out there, but not 100 <laughs> percent. We could be the only ones. So, you know, so somewhere between zero and 100, one and 99, you know, just and that allows you to keep an open mind like, OK, I'm. I'm not going to publicly commit 100%. This is the right. This is the truth. Because the moment you say that, then somebody gives counter evidence. Then you you can't accept it. You just mm. say, well, no, no. I said I don't believe that, so I can't accept your argument or your evidence. And that's that's where the problem starts. Hmm. Do you ever? And I, I wonder if this is something that you talk about on um, in your magazine uh, about if if belief is on this spectrum of anywhere between zero and 100. What is, how important is the experience of sliding back and forth and the feeling of either gaining belief or losing belief in a certain idea? And like, how how important is, the, is it to recognize that feeling of sliding along the spectrum on any given issue? Yeah, super important in terms of your the the psychology of your willingness to change your mind, and and most people are reasonable about this. If the uh, challenge doesn't come in the form of something to, that would require you to change your identity, you know, your political party, your religion, something that you hold dearly, like I am really I am a Christian, I accept Jesus as my savior. That is it. I define myself as okay. Well, I I, I know I cannot just blurt out. Well, this is all bullshit. <laughs> Let me tell you why, right? Because they're not even going to be listening to me. So mm-hmm. depends on the particular claim. That same person may have zero interest in UFOs. Maybe they're here. Maybe they're not. What do I care? Jesus can go. Jesus can go to any planet he wants. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You know, so they don't have a, a you know a dog in the fight, so they're they're more likely to accept evidence, that kind of thing. So you know, on climate change, you know, this is one of those uh, subjects that unfortunately got politicized when it was bundled with um, the Democratic Party and because of Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth. Ever since then, it's become that oh, that's that Democratic cause to destroy American economy and and business and the American way of life and so on. So then, you know, you just can't accept any. Uh, studies showing that it's true and human cause because, you know, you're basically saying, therefore, I don't like America or I'm a Democrat, you know. So the the less we can bundle uh, knowledge claims, uh, unbundle them from religion, politics, economic ideologies, the better. Hmm. How do you do that when people keep trying to snatch them up (laughs) for their cause? (laughs) I don't know, Amanda. You know, it's one of these problems we struggle, a lot of us struggle with all the time. Like, how do you talk to a conspiracy theorist or a climate denier and an anti-vax or whatever? You know, it's hard. I don't know. Uh, you know, we just have this commitment to the truth, um, fact-checking, you know, the kind of openness to um, knowledge claims that might not, you know, agree with yours. And the whole idea of a democratic, open society, you know, which is what we presumably live in, you know, it's hard to see it in the short run, but in the long run, it's way better than it used to be. You know, centuries mm-hmm. ago, people were just not open to, you know, women's rights, gay rights, same-sex marriage rights, civil rights, the abolition of slavery and torture. These things are all just quite commonplace, mm-hmm. and now they're not. So something happened. Somehow people changed their mind, but it's more on a decadal uh 
a level of analysis. It's hard to see year to year, but from decade to decade and century to century in data sets, you can see the change happening. You know, sometimes from the top down, passing laws and legislation to make things legal or illegal, uh, or more likely from the bottom up of just people talking to other people and the norms shift ever so slowly and you don't quite see them Mm. uh, on a day-to-day or year-to-year basis, but all of a sudden people are thinking differently. Mm. (laughs) Just think about, you know, I'm fond of saying that conservatives today are more liberal than liberals were in the 1950s, socially, Mm -hmm. I mean. Uh, And, and, you know, today, even same-sex marriage and and gay rights, even most conservatives have kind of caved in on that one. They don't even talk about it anymore. Uh, Almost nobody does. And it's like, that's only 2015. So that was really fast, right? Or, you know, the acceptance of women in the workplace and, you know, these kind of basic things that were not normal in the 1950s and 60s. And now they are. Hmm. And so, so so how did that happen? You know, well, combination of, you know, anti-discrimination laws and, you know, workplace protections and things like that. But more, I think, just just the norms changing from the bottom up, you know, through novels and books and TV scripts and films and just, you know, just day-to-day life and people just stop thinking one certain way. And, you know, and it's a generational shift, you know, as the mm. older older people, you know, uh, exit the stage and the younger generations come in, they're more tolerant, they're more liberal. Is that inevitable? Is it just like, is it that like at a certain point, a generation just believes what it believes. And is that just, are we all doomed to be <laughs> old and stupid? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> like, what is Yeah, I know. I know. Cause I, I'm a bo- boomer. I was born in 54. <laughs> so it's like, oh no, I'm well, one of those. <laughs> I'm one of those guys. Oh no. Yeah, yeah I know. I know. So I try to go, uh, come on, Shermer. Don't be, don't be like your dad. I'm becoming <laughs> my dad. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, well, so there's a book about this. Uh, you should have Gene Twangy on your show. It's called the book is called Generations. So there are psychologists that study this phenomenon of generational changes, and it's it, it, she's the, she's the one who makes this point about it. it's a decadal uh, a, a shift. It, it, you can't see it on the like day to day, year to year data, but you can over the course of decades. You can see the big differences. Just music and novels, TV shows politics, who was president, you know, these kinds of things play a larger role than, say, world events like the assassination Mm. of JFK or 9-11. Those things are huge in our imagination, but they don't have much effect. More is, you know, kind of length of life. The longer you live, the slower your life could be so you don't have to rush into marriage, childbirth, and so on. I mean, 50 years ago, you would have been what, pregnant at 19? You would have had your first Ooh. child at 19. No and thanks. And now the average age is 29. <laughs> yeah. 29 for, for Gen Z, Gen, yeah, Gen, uh, yeah, millennials and Gen Z, it's 29. And the birth rate has plummeted. You know, it was like three three 3.5, I think, per woman in the 1960s, and now it's 1.6, mm. which is below replacement level. Replacement level is 2.1. So, but so uh, you know, why is that? I mean, there's, there's nobody dictating that you know you can't have a kid until you're 29. <laughs> it's just right. that if if none of your friends, if all your friends go to college, none of them get married until their late 20s or early 30s, and they have kids late 20s, early 30s, you don't feel the need like, well, I gotta, I gotta get, I gotta get on with my life. I better hurry up here because no one else is. <laughs> so it happens kind of that slowly bubbles up from the bottom, and you just inculcate those norms into your own life without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, that brings back to your point of 
there's I, I feel like there's two things happening then when people adopt either beliefs or norms is there's the personal, very internal existential crisis of, holy crap, no one's in charge and we're alone in the universe kind of problem. But then there's also the problem of a sense of belonging to a community and external um, sort of validation and affirmation of who you are and in the building of your identity. How, like, in your opinion, is it what ends up being the more um, influential factor when people are adopting norms and beliefs? Um, Is it that external pressure? And if so, what does that mean for us today? Mm. Yeah, because we are such social beings. I think it's, I think you're right on that. It very much comes from our social groups and what they think. I mean, if you blurt out something and all your friends go, Amanda, come on, man, that's not cool. Or, you know, that's, that's, that's not a nice thing to say. Then you're going to go, oh, yeah, okay, I better rethink that. Right? And so even if it's not directly like that, you get an odd look, you know, like, huh, what did you just say? Then you think, huh, maybe I shouldn't say that again. You know, so that's how language changes, you know, not, not from the top down. Uh, you know, who started, who invented the word 9-11? Nobody. It just started to be used. And most language evolves like that. Some of it's, you know, more overt, like, you know, don't use the N-word. Okay, I got it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to use that word. Okay. Or the C word for women or whatever. Um, And okay. So, you know, somehow that all changed. And if you look at TV scripts, novels from the 1950s and 60s, they're very different from today, how they talk about Jews and Blacks and women. And, you know, that all gets inculcated into our brains and our norms, but also really through our social groups, because who lives alone? Nobody, almost nobody. So, you know, I think I think that's a huge effect there. And again, you just don't see that immediately, but somehow you look back and go, wow, I really thought differently in my 20s than I do now. And how did that happen? I don't even remember how that happened, mm-hmm. right? But and again, this sort of goes back to that issue with UFOs, where it's like typically when you think of the norms and belief systems of a community like, you know, a belief in Christ because you're Christian and your community is Christian, that's something that it's sort of in the ether around you and therefore you sort of unconsciously adopt it. But with UFOs, it's different. It's not like, I mean, there aren't Sure, I'm absolutely there are like small weird communities where kids are growing up with, you know, people talking about UFOs all the time. But it seems like this is an interesting belief that is sought out by a particular individual. And it is a community that people aspire to be a part of. So where do, why is that? That seems to be a difference. Do you see that as a difference or is that just another mm. version of the same thing? Um, well, it used to be really fringy. It's less fringy now, in part because starting with Carl Sagan in the 60s and others that kind of made it acceptable to talk about the possibility that aliens are out there. Again, still different from the UFO thing. Mm-hmm. But even the UFO and now the change to UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, you know, that's a little more neutral because UFOs, the phrase itself has some pejorative nature to it. You know, right. pe- people picture the tinfoil hat wearing wackadoodle 
kid living in his parents' basement blogging about UFOs. And it's not like that so much anymore. Um, and it's become more acceptable. I mean, the U.S. government now has, you know, task force and committees to talk about UAPs. Not that they think that they're aliens. In fact, that they said, we're pretty sure they're not aliens, but they might be Chinese <laughs> or Russian, right? <laughs> but is you that know, so politically it, motivated? <laughs> <laughs> just slightly, yes. Well, that is their job. I mean, the Department of Defense to protect the American continent, right? The homeland, homeland security. Uh, by the way, you know, what would constitute evidence it, it, that we are, you know, that these UFOs are real uh, or it's some super advanced technology or something like that? Well, the Chinese spy balloon, that that was good evidence, right? Clear and unmistakable photographs and videos from tons of people, including fighter pilots. And there's the picture. It's not blurry. It's not grainy. It's not like I can't quite make out what I'm seeing. And oh, the pilots, he's all excited. Whoa, none of that. It's like, there it is. You can see it. I can see it's on the evening news. They shoot it down. You can see the photos of the Navy ships out there dragging the, hauling the debris out of the ocean. That would do it. You know, if we had an alien spacecraft or a Chinese super spy balloon uh, drone or something like that with advanced technology, that's what would do it. Everybody would believe. Hmm. You know, ufologists are like, well, you scientists are all dogmatic, closed-minded flatlanders. You'll never accept. No, not at <laughs> all. We would totally accept it and along the lines of the Chinese spy balloon. Show me that, something like that. You know, but instead what we get are these, you know, again, blurry photographs and grainy videos. And look, if you sort of squint and use your imagination, you can see that it's a disc. It's like, no, sorry, that's just not doing it. That's not acceptable evidence in science. It's right. just not good enough. And the strength of anyone's own personal anecdotal belief is not also doesn't count as evidence, unfortunately. It's not enough. It's it, it could it could count as something like, well, something weird happened. Let's go investigate. Okay, mm. that's fine. But but for scientists to accept it, it's the analogy I make is like in biology, if you want to name a new species, you actually have to have a type specimen. You you, you captured one, you shot it, or it's a roadkill, or there it is. You know, you have it in the cage. And you take it to the conference with your photographs and videos, and everybody can see it. And then it's in the museum, or it's, you know, in the zoo. or And there's no mistake about it. Like the mountain gorilla was discovered as late as 1903. No one knew about the mountain gorilla. There it is. Now they're in the zoo. You know, anybody can see it. It's acceptable knowledge. But, you know, Bigfoot, well, where is it? You know, well, you know, I was out camping. It was three in the morning and I heard this noise and I went out there. I got my camera and I took this picture. Now, it's kind of shady. It's a little dark. But if you use your imagination and you <laughs> squint, you can sort of see two little eyeballs and some arms. And it's like, <laughs> you know, you take that to a biology conference and go, hey, I found a new species, a bipedal primate. Unbelievable. Uh, you know, they're going to go, no, sorry, dude, where is it? <laughs> bring us the body. Hmm. And well, it, it, it escaped. Uh, well, you know, sorry, it's just not good enough. Right. Which actually, this is just a kind of silly question, but do you find the X-Files to be like super annoying? Because <laughs> the way that like it's it's I often find it a very anti-skepticism in the sense that like a time and time again, Scully, is, Scully's job is to be the skeptic. And very mm -hmm. often what happens is like a UFO flies right over her head and she's like, well, 
It could have been something else. <laughs> so, right. like, is yeah. that? <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, it makes the skeptics look close-minded and dogmatic. But at least they had a skeptic. Right? Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but I, I actually, man, I actually liked the show because mm-hmm. it was pretty well produced. The scripts were, you know, fairly sophisticated, and they dealt with a lot of topics that are in my wheelhouse. So that was fun. Uh, we got a lot of media you know, queries at Skeptic about these things. What about this? What about that? Could it be true? You know, that sort of thing. And uh, so, yeah, I liked it. In the same way that, you know, TV shows and films uh, that are really well produced, they're pretty gripping to watch and listen to. Uh, it's like The Ring. You know, I don't believe any of the stuff in The Ring, but it, I was still gripped by it. It was mm. hard not to watch it. So how did you ever enter into, first of all, the UFO space? What got you thinking about UFOs? And what got you into the skepticism space? Like, what what sort of belief system did you encounter in your own life that got you thinking, wait a second, skepticism's the way to go? What's your origin story on <laughs> yeah. that? My origin story, yeah. Well, first of all, I, I, I think you'd have to be you know, really uninterested to not find something compelling about UFOs because it does touch on that deeper uh, thought that we're not alone and there's something. And then then before you know it, you're talking about extraterrestrial intelligences and galaxies and stars and planets and you're doing astronomy. Mm. So that's good. And, you know, my first class in college uh, was Astronomy 101. Richard Hardison was my professor and later became a friend. And I was just totally fascinated by the whole thing. And then, you know, then discovered Carl Sagan and all that stuff. And, you know, he was writing a lot about these ideas of extraterrestrial intelligence. But his skepticism was also there for UFOs. And, you know, he made that distinction. Are they out there? Have they come here? What kind of evidence would we accept? And so on. So that got me into that. Then, um, and then when I was in graduate school in experimental psych, um, there was a, in the 70s, there was a lab, a paranormal lab at UCLA run by Thelma Moss. And she was doing experiments on like Curlian photography and hypnosis, altered states of consciousness, ESP, the supernatural, the paranormal. And Uri Geller was all the rage. This is the Israeli spoonbender who was mm. you know, allegedly bending spoons with his mind. And then I saw the amazing Randy, the magician, saying, you know, if he's bending spoons with his mind, he's doing it the hard way. Here's how to do it as a, as a magician would do it. It's much easier. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay. You know, and there was Randy on The Tonight Show uh, doing psychic surgery and exposing the faith healers. And I realized... You know, this stuff that I was so open-minded to because I didn't know anything mm. about it. I, and if, it, if there's a lab at UCLA, maybe there must be something to it. Uh, but, but then I realized, okay, so maybe there's something to it, but probably not because here's some good reasons why the magician can do everything the so-called psychic could do. So maybe it's all magic in the, in the uh, illusion sense. And uh, so then... Um, uh, and also, I was into the creationism evolution debate because I, originally I was a born again evangelical Christian. I went to Pepperdine University, and at the time I was something of a creationist because I thought that's what you were supposed to be as a Christian, even though they weren't like that at Pepperdine. But after I got out of religion after seven years, then I started applying those tools of science to everything—not just religious claims, but to any claims. Mm. And and then by the time 
you know, by the late 80s, early 90s, when I, I got my PhD and was a college professor at Occidental College, um, there was something of a burgeoning skeptical movement that I wanted to be part of. And mm. Carl Sagan gave this speech in Pasadena uh, called The Burden of Skepticism. So I write about this in my first book, Why People Believe Weird Things, dedicated to Carl, about, um, you know, how to think like a skeptic. And I mm. thought, wow, that's what I want to do. You know, and again, it's not dogmatic, it's not closed-minded, it's not cynicism, you know, it's not nihilism, we can't know anything. It's just, you know, just a reasonable question, what should I believe? Hmm. What should anybody believe about anything? You know, and, and can we really get to the core of that question? Hmm. Or are there some areas that are just off-limits, like art or music or politics, religion? You know, are, are religions destined to all, always be off limits for science and, or there's some claims um, that can be tested or thought about rationally. You know, so the example I use is the resurrection of Jesus. You know, what I want to know is, did it really happen? Mm. So if you get a Jordan Peterson, like, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell mythology approach, well, whether it happened or not is irrelevant. It's what it stands for. It's what it represents. And people believe it changes their life. They're born again in this life. Uh, in terms of forgiving other people and starting over and, you know, bearing their own cross. It's like, okay, all right, I get all that, you know, literary truths and psychological truths, mythic truths can can affect people's lives. But that's slightly different from the scientific question. But did it really happen? Hmm. Was there this guy named Jesus of Nazareth? Was he really crucified? And did he really come back from the dead three days later? That's, you know, that's a different kind of question. So I, I try to keep those separate. And once you start that, then it's hard to stop. Like, well, what else, what else are people claiming, hmm. you know? But if, but if somebody says, well, it, it makes me feel better personally inside, uh, there's not much I can say about that. Right. Uh, it's like um, I had, had the opportunity once to meet Isaac Hayes, the great uh, Grammy Award winner, winning singer. Theme from Shaft was his most famous song. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he'd kind of fallen out and had a meltdown over drugs and alcohol and all this stuff, lost all his money. Then he made a comeback due to Scientology. <laughs> it's like, oh no, Scientology, it's a cult. You know, I've, I've been lifelong critic criticism of this, crit critic of that. Anyway, but he was friends with my best friend. And so I used to go back and have Thanksgiving dinner with my buddy, Michael Coles. And there's Isaac Hayes sitting across from me at the dinner table. Oh my God. And so I just asked him, what does Scientology do for you? I wasn't being critical. I wasn't, you know, he didn't even know who I was. So, right. uh, and he just told me, well, Michael, you know, I had all this fame and wealth and fortune and everything was great. And then I lost it all and they helped me. Hmm. And now I'm back on my feet. My career's going again and I couldn't have done it without them. Hmm. Well, that's, you know, I just let it th sit there because I, I don't want to take that away from somebody and say, oh, that, but it's all bullshit. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, there's an internal truth. It, it helps me. It works for me to believe X. Okay. You know, and, uh, but that's, again, that's in a kind of a different realm than, in a, in a scientific realm? Does it really work? Does Scientology really work better than something else, psychotherapy or whatever? That's a different question. Right. I mean, it, that's, a, that's an actually interesting dilemma that you are encountering, which is when, when and how do you discuss faith with people? And also, is, is it the trappings of the faith that they are that they're attracted to, or is it the actual faith belief system itself? Um, do you, as somebody who is live living with 
um, and living by skepticism, do you find yourself to like, do you think people like you? <laughs> <laughs> well, Amanda, I hope so. <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to be disliked. No one wants to be disliked. Mm. Um, well, my approach is mostly fairly conciliatory with people who believe anything. I, I try to approach it like a scientist. I just want to know why is it you believe X, whatever mm. it is. And rather than, you know, confronting as a, an activist, I am here to convert you to my way of thinking, which rarely happens right on the spot anyway. Mm. So if you take a, an approach of like listening to people, asking questions, being respectful, look them in the eye, nod, try to steel man their argument. Okay, let me understand this. Are you saying, and then repeat what you think they're saying. Right. And then often they'll go, no, that isn't actually what I'm saying. Oh, okay, good. And then you go back and forth until you figure out what it is. There's a, that alone will get you uh, a more of an open mind mm. on the other side of the conversation because then they think, well, this guy respects me. He's listening to me. Okay. And if I say, well, I was a born-again Christian once, too, for seven years, they go, what? Right. <laughs> really? Well, what happened? And then I tell them, and they go, oh, huh. Okay. And so instead of saying, you know, being confrontational, I, I find that that helps. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, you have to be true to yourself. Some people are more militant about these things uh, than I am. But you know, Christopher Hitchens was famously very contrarian this way. Right. In, in his own, you know, you can watch these videos online, hitch, hitch slaps, they're called. I know. It's a little, <laughs> yeah, it's a little aggressive. It's a little like, oh, I mean, like, I kind of want you to score that point, but also, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that actually reminds me. Oh, go big, ahead. Big fun, big fun to watch, but it's like, I don't think I could pull that off. I know. <laughs> that actually reminded me of my question that I was going to ask you, which is, as somebody who is coming from a place of having been a born-again evangelical Christian, did did your crisis of faith ever become a crisis of identity for yourself? I've definitely um, interviewed people, for example, who said that once they questioned their faith, um, which is a huge part of their identity, they sort of lost faith in themselves and they didn't really mm. trust themselves to know what to believe in anymore. Did you ever have that experience? No, mm. because I wasn't raised religious. My parents were not religious. Mm. They weren't secular. They weren't anything. They just never gave it much thought. And mine was more influenced by my peer group, mm. my cohort of people I was hanging around with in high school. They were all doing it. And, you know, it was kind of the, this was the early 70s. So this was the early kind of evangelical movement, non-denominational, didn't belong to any religious church, or anything like that. We were just, it was just me and Jesus mm. <laughs> and the Bible. And, and, the, and the group of, you know, long haired guitar playing, kumbaya <laughs> kind of people in the sandal wearing that kind of era. And uh, so it was just kind of more interesting for me. And then, but, but I, I more intellectualized it. I was, I loved all the debates about God's existence, arguments for and against, and free will and determinism and the problem of evil and all that stuff. And so at Pepperdine, I took courses on all those things the Old Testament, the New Testament, the life of Jesus, the writings of C.S. Lewis, who is a pretty intellectual uh, theologian about these things. So I liked that aspect of it. But I was young. I was in my early 20s. So by the time I gave it up, it didn't really matter. Mm. I mean, I think my family was relieved that I gave it up because <laughs> I quit evangelizing to them, you know, at every possible moment, because that's what you're supposed to do. Right. <laughs> so finally, he quit talking about Jesus. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, it, it didn't matter to my girlfriend. And it, it just it didn't matter. And, and at graduate school, nobody was religious, or maybe they were. It mm. just wasn't a thing. And it didn't matter. So, so the world I'm, made it easier for you to transition yes. out of that space. 
Yeah, I, I'm sympathetic to people that are, you know, older, their entire family's religious, everyone at work is religious. The only question is, which Baptist church do you go to? The one, it's like, which Starbucks do you go to? Right. They're everywhere in these towns in America, particularly in the Bible Belt. And, you know, they feel lost. Like, I'm the only one mm. who doesn't believe in God. And, and I, I secretly read Skeptic Magazine. It comes in a brown paper bag. Right. <laughs> they don't want anybody to know. It's like, oh, man, that would be hard. Hmm. So beyond just the rise in popularity and the belief of in UFOs and and that we were visited by aliens, what other belief systems do you see having either a resurgence or are coming into themselves today that you are looking into in Skeptic Magazine? Oh, well, the last year we've been hitting hot-button issues, trans, abortion, race, the rise of Christian nationalism, energy issues, should we have nuclear, our next one's on education, uh, you know, what, do we need educational reform, why do our schools suck, how come America is like one of the worst of the Western industrialized democracies in terms of public education, we spend more than anybody, healthcare, mm -hmm. another, I'm trying to apply skepticism to other areas that I think are important, more important than UFOs and psychics, astrology. I mean, we've already done those things for 30 years. Like, it's enough of that, right? So, you know, the trans thing is super interesting and important. Yeah, a lot of lives are being affected. You know, there's the social contagion aspect of it, but there's also the more tolerant liberal society that's open right. to that. So that could be a factor as well. And, you know, then there's multiple issues within each of those, like should male to female trans athletes be able to compete against women in women's sports? You know, very narrow, specific thing, you know, that I've been writing a lot about. And then there's, you know, parental consent issues about minors who want to transition, you know, all these things. Right. Right? I mean, this is, these are, this is in the news every day. And if you're on social media, I just do Twitter, you know, it's on there like every other post I see is something about this, a new story, a new article, incident, you know, this happened, that happened. It's like, whoa, okay. Hard to ignore. And people, you know, my kind of regular older listeners are like, how come you're pounding away on this, Sherman? Go back to UFOs or psychics. <laughs> it's like, well, but it's important. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's in the news every day. This, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, the anti-racism movement. Is that, you know, are there really more police killings of blacks than before? Mm -hmm. What's the data show? You know, these are important questions, and in a lot of them, we can get an answer mm. by you looking at the data, looking at what we know. Or in the case of trans, there's a lot, we don't have a lot of data. Mm. You know, like how many detransitioners are there? Well, I don't know. Right. I mean, nobody knows exactly because it's happening like right now. Mm. You know, a lot it's unfolding every week, and uh, so it's hard to get reliable data on those things. But at least we we should try and and have that part of the conversation. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting problem with. Um, social issues that rely upon belief systems is sometimes you just have to try like in in um, you you spoke about how like at a certain point it was just you didn't see you know uh, people who were gay were not out there in the open. And so there were a lot of like like people who were perpetrating certain stereotypes about gay people just because they weren't visible and they, you know, they weren't being portrayed in media and everything like that. So it's like, it's interesting how when you don't have data, what do you do? Like, it, it, and this is a good question for you as a skeptic, like, do you, when you 
apply a certain idea or a new belief system or a new social norm to society? Like, how much do you need to have data and how much do you just need to let it unfold and get data later? Well, on social media, no one waits for data. (laughs) That's fair, yeah. (laughs) Everybody just comments, I can't stop. I got to say something now. Right. (laughs) You know, and I get that. I do that too. Sometimes I go, why did I comment on that? You know, it's like the Steele dossier and the the whole Trump and Russia thing. I I know I commented too early on that. Now it's, you know, it's what, five years, six, seven years later. It's like, oh, so the FBI just completely fucked that up. Oh, thanks. Great. (laughs) So- yeah, so it's better to wait if you can um, when we don't have it. A lot of the these issues, though, are not data-driven. Say, uh, some my examples, like a political truths, you know, like what's the right immigration policy? Mm. You know, I don't, I don't know what it is. You know, how many p- immigrants should we allow in legally each year? You know, 25,000, 100,000, a million? You know, different countries have different numbers. There's no right number. Hmm. It's just, what's your goal? Right. You know, what's the policy? What's, you know, the Democratic Party has a different policy than the Republican Party. Not that different, but, you know, or what's the right upper income tax bracket? You know, it used to be 70% before Reagan, hmm. you know, in the in the 50s and 60s, it was huge. Now it's, what, 38%, you know? So, but there is no right number. <laughs> it's just like, well, you know, what? who's in power and what do they want? And, you know, and, and what does the po- people want? Mm-hmm. That, you know, that's the truth by democracy. Sometimes that is the only way to get at it. The abortion issue is interesting because it is definitely political and the country's split pretty close to 50-50 on pro-life, pro-choice. And, you know, I'm pro-choice. I, I think that pro-choice people have better arguments, you know, but sometimes if you just have conflicting rights like that, it just really does come down to, well, who's in power? Right. And, you know, that, that so if you want to change it, you got to get in power, go out and vote or be an activist or whatever. And, you know, so there, science can only get us so far, I think, and then sometimes we're just left with, well, that's the messiness of democracy. Mm. Yeah, you know, the abortion issue is so interesting because it has been a part of human existence since we've been making babies. Yes, that's right. I mean, people have been trying to control family size forever. And, you know, before uh, the 20th century, especially, but before the pill, you know, it was the rhythm method or, you know, the pull out at the last minute method, mm-hmm. you know, and the people that do that are called parents. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's not very, not very reliable. Uh, but, you know, infanticide was quite high in, in the as late as like the late 19th, early 20th century. So essentially abortion after birth right. rather than before. And, uh, you know, that was made illegal. And, you know, okay, so, but we still have this other problem. You know, there's, the problem isn't abortion. It's unwanted pregnancies. Right. Why do people, why are people getting pregnant when they don't want to? Right. Well, education, economic empowerment, freedom, autonomy, you know, access to uh, affordable birth control, things like that. You know, the pill was a 1960 major game changer. Change is one of those drivers of generational changes. Women did not have to do, they could do what they want. Yeah. <laughs> they could control it. That was huge. And um, there, I think on the abortion issue, I think um, there's, uh, it's not just political. I think our uh, the political polling on this has kind of moved in the direction of what most people intuitively think is reasonable. First trimester, you know, safe and rare, safe, rare, and legal. That's the phrase, right? So first trimester, almost everybody's, yeah, that seems okay. Third trimester, that really seems wrong. Somewhere in the middle in the second trimester, maybe 20 weeks, 22 weeks, 18 weeks, you know, somewhere in there. You know, so when Republicans, since the uh, Supreme Court decision have been, you know, moving more, some of them have been moving more toward kind of 
an arms race of who could be m- more against abortion than the other <laughs> candidates. I know. Right? So they, they want to capture the kind of far right. And, but the problem is, is that, that most Americans don't think that. They think six weeks, 12 weeks, that's too soon, too early to, to ban it. Right. And so those a few of those people have lost elections over mm. that. So I think in the general election, um, even Republicans are going to have to be pretty moderate about this and follow what most Americans want, which is legal, safe, and rare. And uh, and really, education of women, access to birth control as part of healthcare programs, that really has a huge effect right. on uh, the number of unwanted pregnancies, which is the problem. So you would think, this is my appeal to conservatives, because I'm not a conservative, you know, if, if you're really, you're, you're, you're against abortion, yeah, me too. Uh, it's unwanted pregnancies you should be right. against. And, and so that's, just think of it as a, a technological educational problem. You know, how can we help people that don't want to get pregnant not get pregnant? Okay, education, access to birth control, and so on and so forth. We know this works, you know, and we know that the other direction doesn't work. These ch- ch- chastity pledges, yeah, and you know, these things, they don't work, right? I have a whole lecture to my students about this. They're all 18, 19 years old. And uh, so we talk about... Um, time discounting and and myopic time discounting that is it's it's hard to project yourself into the future it's easy to do it without the consequences now right mm-hmm. so it's easy to sign the chastity pledge on sunday morning at church but come next saturday night when you're out with your friends drinking <laughs> and it's a big fun well uh, and also party. tell tell <laughs> all the husbands out there that the wife is not ready to have another baby so we're just not going to have sex all the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly right 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 yeah so i tell the women now you don't you don't count on the guy to put the condom on they are the worst about this so be prepared and then to the guys i like i don't want to hear any of this i don't want to wear a Condom. Oh yeah, like somebody else does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. too bad. Yeah. <laughs> so you know that's that's part of the problem mm. there. So uh, again, again, we just have to make it just accessible, uh, affordable, easy to get, and so on. Not because I think you know people should just have carefree sex, and you know there's pushback against that. Maybe women can't have sex like men do. You know that's, that's some of those uh, new books about that subject that you, you've I think you've talked about that too. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Louise Perry's book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, mm-hmm. you know, that, all right, fine, but just have the choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? Just do what, do whatever you want and uh, don't have sex, fine, but, uh, you know, don't criticize other people that do and are, are taking precautions about that. Right. Anyway, that's, that's sort of a little off topic there, but, but I, I think that's most Americans' intuitions about abortion are, are pretty accurate. Well, I've taken up an hour of your time. I just wanted to ask one more question, which is, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to bring up or would you like to plug anything? Oh, well, gosh, okay. <laughs> uh, other things to bring. Well, there's lots of things I, I suppose we, we could talk about. I'll, I'll have you back. Here's my projection that in, in within 10 years, everyone on Earth will have a podcast and that will end war. <laughs> <laughs> there'll, be, there'll be no more conflict because we're all just talking to each other. Well, that's it. You know what? I'm doing my best to bring world peace is what's happening here. <laughs> yeah, maybe Putin will have a podcast. Make oh, Russia God. great again. <laughs> You can find Michael Shermer on X, at Michael Shermer, on michaelshermer.com, and you can find Skeptic Magazine at skeptic.com. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on X, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. You can learn more about our work and how to support it at knoxrobinson.com. And I'm telling you this in confidence, 
a secret cabal of government agents is trying to suppress this podcast. You can help fight the Illuminati by leaving us a five-star review and telling everyone you know about Labyrinths. Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written and produced by us with theme music by Josh Budo-Karp. Hold it right there. Let me hear your ads. These aren't the ads you're looking for. These aren't the ads we're looking for. This podcast is listener-supported. This podcast is listener-supported. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Come on, boys. Let's visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Ha, 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 ha.